You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. How could it have happened? Who is to blame? What did the president know and when did he know it? See, getting the president out on national television saying it's a hell of a crisis and so forth, I think has a tendency to overplay the urban hearings, overplay me, overplay that I'm guilty and I'm going to resign, all that bullshit. God damn it, I'm not going to do that. The fact that his lies uh, were irrefutably demonstrated out of his own mouth on tape uh, that he then lost any option of continuing as president. Of course, that was all 
Yeah, that, that's, that's that area. I mean, that general area. Of course, that was, I don't want to burden you with it. Something had to be done. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not, no second thoughts. That's not yeah. the point. Is it just it, it limits the ability now to, uh, yeah. to stand up to it. I don't know. I've, I've thought of several things. I've thought of trying to get a, a special counsel into you that could... Uh, Not as an investigator, but as a counsel. Uh, just to handle a goddamn thing on the grounds that you don't want the Justice Department handling it, you don't want the regular White House staff handling it, they've got their work to do. Yeah. And uh, you appoint a man of ridiculously impeccable uh, credentials, a uh, man known for his integrity, uh, standing before the bar, you know, that kind of thing, but a guy who's also totally loyal, or just a damn good lawyer who would be professional with that. One thought that I've been playing with the last couple of days. Yeah. Mm. We have an advantage, you see, of getting all of the people who have been, in one way or another, participating out of the damn thing so that you, you've got a guy who, uh, frankly, can, can deal with the, deal with anybody he has to deal with. Yeah. Special counsel. I think, the, the first, first, you've got the problem of what the judge is going to say Friday. I suppose he's going to have quite an harangue, isn't he? Oh, yeah. Welcome to the show. Um, I'm Randall Wallace, and uh, this is an episode where we're going to take a look at a couple of things that I think need to be pointed out. One of them is the central figure of Watergate, other than, of course, Richard Nixon, is John Dean. He is the counsel to the president. And the other is a figure that is leaving the scene in 19... Prior to 1974, we went back and, as you could see in our earlier episodes, and looked at the Saturday Night Massacre again, and that's Archibald Cox. Because one feeling that I have had as I have studied this material and gone through it is that maybe it was a mistake for Archibald Cox to have been fired, despite uh, obviously the uh, facing down the president uh, on that afternoon uh, prior to his termination that night. Uh, in that, Mr. Cox though a very serious partisan, uh, was also uh, a you know, college professor who wanted to be fair. And, and therein lies what I think is we're going to start to see, and that is, as we called it throughout our series, the sinister force of Watergate. That is the staff of the uh, special prosecutor's office and their ability to manipulate the situation. Also, uh, John Dean. Who, who is, uh, you know, as I have told people, he's not the White House butler who just happens to overhear things. This is the counsel to the president. His job is to tell them when something illegal is going on and to stop it or to, you know, say, hey, Mr. President, you can't do that. And he did not do that. Not only that, he became a, the central figure, the link between uh, the, the, the president and the White House and the campaign. And on our 
side of things, you know, I want to keep you from being confused. And uh, and that's one of the things we are going to have a problem. In 1974, which is where our timeline is in this, there's a lot that you have to go back to 1973 to look at because that's the central period of time when, and it, and it starts on March 21st. The tape we just listened to with Chuck Colson is later in the day of the same day as, as the cancer on the presidency speech uh, conversation with John Dean and the president. And you can see now that Nixon's trying to figure out what to do. Um, he, and, 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 and you can see in that call that he trusts John Dean, his, his lawyer. That will change as time goes on. And that's what I want to point out to you. This was John Dean's the central figure. And, uh, in, in, and, you know, he, he's who the president's relying on, uh, throughout, uh, Watergate as it unfolded up until the 21st of March. And then, I think there were questionable uh, tapes that you hear and the and the abuse of power, not really the abuse of power, but the involvement of Nixon or what appears to be his involvement is uh, all that goes on after the 21st of March uh, till maybe late May, June time period. That is the crux of did Nixon do something wrong? Did he join the conspiracy? Is he trying to contain it? Um, and, and, and that's the period of time when he gets himself in trouble. I would say, looking at it, that uh, there's a series of events that happen and that you've got a president floundering around trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And and that is actually what you hear on these tapes. And what I'm introducing to, to this is like a series within a series. We're looking at 1974 from the beginning of the year when Leon Jaworski gets there and the 18 half minute gap happens to the indictments and how that unfolded. We're going to be, at times, bouncing back to this period of time and listening to the tapes uh, so that you um, get a feel for what's happening. And just so you get an understanding of the timeline, I'm going to go back to one of our earlier shows that we did on Jeff Shepard where he talks about um, when he lost his faith and when he got it back. But he also lays out the timeline of events. You were a bit frustrated with the Watergate scandal. And I'm curious when... Um, the moment in time in your life, um, when did that change? From when, you know, what was the revealing document or the revealing element that made you realize that the president um, was being falsely accused? Re- restore my faith. Not why did I lose faith? That's the smoking gun yeah. take. Re- restoration. I was on his defense team. We were gearing up to defend the president in the House in a Senate trial. And we believed, we felt the prosecutors believed, everything turned on what Nixon did on Wednesday, March 21st, 1973, when John Dean came in and said, you know, there's a cancer on the presidency. It's growing, it's compounding. You're going to have to make some pretty important decisions very soon, and you don't know what's been going on. We're being blackmailed. Nixon and Dean have both maintained consistently that that's the first time he ever told Richard Nixon about any specifics of the cover-up. That's where the battle was going to be joined. But then out of nowhere, that's March 21st, 1973, out of nowhere came this smoking gun tape from June 23rd 1972, right after the Watergate break-in. Nobody knew about it. There was nothing else having to do with it. It was a big surprise to the lawyers. 
Lawyers made a mistake. To my great shame, the lawyers misinterpreted the tape, demanded it be released. It was, it destroyed Nixon's credibility and he resigned three days after its release. But that juxtaposition of we were all geared up to fight here and this thing popped out. And, and what started it was doubt about that thing. And I started learning stuff from other authors and other uh, uh, analysts who said that that wasn't designed to cover up. That was designed to protect the identity of two major donors who happened to be Democrats. Uh, and and I, it took me a lot of time of research, and I was ready to make that case when John Dean published a book in 2014 called The Nixon Defense. Uh, and, and a footnote at page 55, if you care to look it up, he says, you know, funny thing, the smoking gun's been misunderstood all along. Uh, his lawyers misinterpreted it. It was really to protect these donors. And if Nixon had known, he could have lived again to fight another day. I'm quoting. In short, the smoking gun was shooting blanks. So I went back. Forget that. Forget the smoking gun. It was a mistake. I'm sorry, but it was a mistake. Come back forward to March 21st. Now, I transcribed the tapes. This is a long answer, Chris, but you asked. I transcribed the tapes. They are hard to transcribe. These are not easy conversations. The audio quality is, is uh, terrible. So when you're transcribing them, you're reaching for the words. You're trying to get inside the head of the speaker. Where are they going with this conversation? Now, to be fair, the initial cut at those transcriptions was done by Rose Woods, uh, the president's secretary, and her assistant, Marge Acker. Uh, but Fred Bazart told me that we're turning these tapes over, and we've got to know what's on them. You can follow the conversation. They probably couldn't. But we can't be surprised if there's something on those tapes. So get every word you can. Well, that's hard work. And I believe there are very, very few people who have listened to the tapes. And there aren't very many who have really studied the transcripts. But in my view, and I'll go up against anybody with this view, He's told about the blackmail on Wednesday, March 21st, by John Dean. The and, the, and the answer of that meeting is getting John Mitchell down here from New York. Let's figure out what on earth to do. They meet again that evening, and they're still, they don't know what to do. Mitchell's coming down the next day. They think Mitchell's guilty as he can be, uh, and the goal is get Mitchell to take a fall. That's how we're going to get out from under this. But the next day, Mitchell's not interested in taking a fall. And what they come up with is we'll send John Dean to Camp David. It's right there on the tape. He will write a report. He'll write a report of what he told me the day before. And I will use that report to call for a new investigation. And I won't claim executive privilege. My staff will have to go back. Now, it's a little unclear on the tape whether they mean back to the Irvin Committee, where it will be public, or back to a grand jury, where it will be private. And there's no question they don't want that report to say too much. Okay, Put it as favorably as you can, but 
There's no doubt on that tape, Nixon is going to call for a renewed investigation and not claim executive privilege. That's when it rebuilt my faith in the president. One of the things I want to do with the series um, is go, like I said, back and forth and look at some of these tapes because uh, the prosecutors and the media have always made assumptions about what these tapes mean, uh, what he meant. They think they're mind readers. And some of this stuff's not as clear as you think it is, especially when you listen to the tapes in their entirety. A lot of times it's very exculpatory what is actually happening. I had no idea, Dan, that the taping mechanism was in place. Uh, The people that knew that, it was a very small uh, group of people. Uh, I immediately thought this is going to be interesting. I, I, I did not know what, uh, what, what would come of it. Uh, I will say this, and I cover this in my book, the tapes are going to end up perhaps being a blessing as time goes on, because the tapes, as we get into more and more of them, uh, are, are, are starting to give, provide us material that is exculpatory for President Nixon. I mean, there, the, what, what happened in, with the prosecutors and when these tapes were put out, that they did these slices of the tapes, uh, all of which shows the abuse of power and, and, uh, and so forth, but they don't show the complete story of what was going on within the presidency and how some of the comments fit into context. So uh, I think there's a lot of road to travel here uh, we're 50 years into it, but we're a long way from getting to all of the the bottom uh, level of what this thing was all about. I just want him to be sure to understand, that as far as the president is concerned, everybody in this case is to talk and tell the truth. You're to tell everybody, you don't even have to call me on that with anybody. Just say those are your orders. Very good. Fair enough. Yes, sir. Okay. All right, thank you, sir. The gentleman you just heard talking, Dwight Chapin, was... Uh, President Nixon's uh, appointment secretary, who was dragged into Watergate and convicted for uh, lying to a grand jury, uh, unrelated to the actual break-in. But I thought it fascinating, too, to add that call that you heard. That's Henry Peterson, the assistant attorney general, who was over the criminal division and was over the case early on when the regular prosecutors that were for the Justice Department were investigating things. And you hear the president say something very clear, and I and you'll hear later some prosecutors say, "Well, that's not what you heard." Uh, well, that's exactly what you hear. Tell the truth. I want you to tell the truth. One of the other big issues about Watergate is, in my opinion, is it's two very separate things, and and all the the, the things to do with Daniel Ellsberg breaking into his psychiatrist's office. You know, I don't want to condone that, but you were in wartime. You were having some issues with the FBI doing their job. And uh, sounds familiar, doesn't it? And and uh, Nixon, they put this group together uh, to do national security work because Daniel Ellsberg had top secret clearance. They did not know what all he had stolen. On top of the Pentagon Papers, uh, what he had he had access to everything. And there had been a series of events, whether it be the uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff spying on the on the president and Henry Kissinger. They were rifling through briefcases and taking things. Uh, things were getting leaked to the uh, press uh, as soon as they went out, even when things were being guarded to just give to the principals, like the Secretary of Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of State. 
Uh, and so th this was a national security operation. Maybe it wasn't handled perfectly, but there is a loophole in the law about what the president can do uh, in a national security uh, era because, you know, or, or field. And as you know, I mean, that's part of his oath, right? Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. That's part of the job. And, and that is something that gets misconstrued later in an interview with David Frost, the famous when the president orders it, it means it's not illegal. Uh, it had to do with national security, and that, that, that quote's been taken out of context many, many times. But one of the things was this break-in break uh, at Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist office. Uh, it's always made to look, if you watch a documentary, which I'm going to show you a blurb from right here in a minute, as though the president hid this, and that, uh, and that this was the guarded secret of the White House, when in reality, when he was confronted by Henry Peterson, the Attorney General, he, fa he, he said, yeah, that's a national security matter, and you don't need to go into that. Uh, Charlie Schaeffer said, oh, by the way, uh, there's something uh, further that you might be uh, interested in, in, in knowing uh, that my, my client can tell you. And then he turned to uh, uh, Mr. Dean and said, tell him, John. I explained to them that they had in their files information that was evidence of a break-in and a burglary of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office. We had this picture. It showed the uh, parking spaces with the names of people on the parking spaces. It didn't make any sense to us. And uh, we said, what in the world is that all about? They were photocopies of snapshots that Howard Hunt had taken at the psychiatrist's office. The CIA, which had developed them for Hunt, had passed them on to the prosecutors with no explanation. Dean revealed what they were, evidence that Watergate was just one in a series of White House crimes. Earl Silver immediately recognized the significance and his mandible or jaw just dropped open. And he got right quiet. The next morning, Henry Peterson received a memo from Silbert. He went to the president with the news that two White House employees had burglarized a doctor's office. And the president said when I told him, I know about that. That's a national security matter. You stay out of that. Peterson did put the evidence of the Ellsberg break-in before the judge who made it public. Now Ehrlichman, who had authorized the Ellsberg operation, faced prosecution. So as you can see here, uh, President Nixon didn't didn't deny or lie about any of that. I mean, this was a national security matter, and he said that's what it was. Peterson goes and gives it to the judge, and the judge puts it out there in the open, which goes against any time you're doing anything in national security, you, you know, that you need the ability to be quiet about those kind of things. It's a debatable uh, point, but frankly, I think it's a separate point than the rest of Watergate. The other thing uh, is John Ehrlichman's involvement in that. He, his defense always was that he, he had approved a covert operation, not a, a break-in or a crime. And this was, again, should have been the tip-off about G. Gordon Liddy, uh, who went into the office and they ransacked the office and got him a police report uh, that he might not have been the right man for the job. All of this, of course, puts President Nixon in this horrible light. And what I wanted to do was show you some tapes you know, we talked about the exculpatory uh, uh, tapes that have come to light. And this is one coming up to Henry Kissinger. This is all this is coming down on him. Uh, and it's 
now at the point that this tape is done, John Dean has gone to the prosecutors. He's in, and Nixon's had to fire uh, or ask for the resignations of Bob Halderman and John Ehrlichman. Fired John Dean and asked Richard Kleindienst for no fault of his own. And you know, there's some people who will throw you off about the ITT scandal. Kleindienst was never convicted of anything. He didn't do anything wrong, but uh, he was tied to John Mitchell. So the president, seeing what had happened, asked him to resign as well. Uh, and and he calls Henry Kissinger. And when you listen to this call, it is not the sound of a guilty man. It's a man struggling, trying to figure out what to do, and loyal to his staff who have been loyal to him. Well, rather a hard day, wasn't it? Well, it was hard for you. Yeah. And I, I didn't know you had made the statement you did until the evening. And I think of the discipline with which you conducted the meeting in the morning. And then going through the evening. <laughs> and then going through the evening. You know, the problem I have is that uh, I can't look at it in a detached way. I really should. Well, these people, God damn it, they're guilty. Throw them out and go on. But uh, just the personal things, sir. God damn. I think of these good men. Pretty 
hard. I'm the only one, frankly, of the whole God, of the whole bunch who really didn't know a goddamn thing, you know, about it until until March when I finally Dean came in and said, "Well, here's where it is," which he should have done months ago. Well, they were in over their head, and they tried to instead of stepping back and assessing where they were. Got them deeper and deeper. That's right. But I think the absolute, I mean, to protect the place. Well, if, if we can, if we can, we will. But if we don't, what the hell? We can, Mr. President. Maybe we will. Uh, I've even considered the possibility of, frankly, just uh, throwing myself on the sword and no, not letting, 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 letting Agnew take it. What the hell? That is out of the question, with all due respect, Mr. President. That cannot be considered. Well, the personality, what it would do to the presidency and to the historical injustice of it. Why should you do it? And what good would it do? Whom would it help? It wouldn't help the country. It wouldn't help any individual involved. But mm -hmm. with all respect, I don't think a president has a right to sacrifice himself for an individual. And it would, of course, be personally unjust. Archie Cox was particularly firm in his personal determination that Dean be prosecuted no matter what. Dean became a E-Day fixe for Cox. True, as a witness, Dean would cement otherwise weak cases against Halderman and Erlkman, but Cox preferred, if forced to choose, to take the relatively sure shot at Dean rather than the long shot against Dean's superiors. When the Saturday Night Massacre loomed close, it might have been propitious for Cox to make a deal with Dean and secure Dean's testimony against President Nixon as another weapon to hold the president off. Even then, Cox's determination did not waver. With all the uncertainties of Watergate that swirled around him, the weakness of the evidence against Nixon's top aides without Dean's testimony, the possibility of presidential culpability, the problem of obtaining White House evidence and of dealing with national security, Cox saw Dean's guilt as the one enduring constant. During a particularly difficult period, Archie remarked to us, quote, If everything else goes down the drain, the one thing I can cling to is Dean's venality. Lynchpin, John W. Dean III, page 107 of the book Stonewall, written by Special Prosecutors Richard Benvenisti and George Frampton, Jr. To me, that's a fascinating excerpt from the book Stonewall, written by Richard Benvenisti and George Frampton, two staff people in the Special Prosecutor's Office, the lawyers, and Benvenisti's a major player in all this, so is Frampton. Uh, and they're talking about Archibald Cox, and this is sort of a crossroads where everything, that, well, the points I want to make in this show come together, because in that, right up to the day Archibald Cox was fired, he wanted to see John Dean prosecuted for his role in Watergate. And that is something you don't hear all the time. And that's what's going to change when Cox is gone and Leon Jaworski comes in. And Cox, uh, who Nixon uh, ended up loathing and because he felt, Nixon felt like he was under siege by this prosecutor's office because of all the manipulation going on by the staff. And, and, and the Saturday Night Massacre and the Stennis Compromise is a perfect example 
of them wrangling about how to deal with the tapes because the president was guarding executive privilege. You know, there's a lot of embarrassing stuff on those tapes. That might have been why some of, of Nixon's not wanting to turn them over. But uh, they're wrangling over that. And Cox comes up with this idea with Elliot Richardson, who's the attorney general, about, uh, you know, uh, a third-party verification. And Nixon wouldn't do it. And they end up in court, and Nixon loses. Then he comes back, and they have this whole negotiation to go ahead and do it, where they come up with John Stennis, and Sam Irvin agrees to it, Senator Irvin agrees to it, Senator Baker agrees to it, John Stennis agrees to it, James Eastland, all the major players they think they've got to deal with Elliot Richardson. Elliot Richardson thinks he's got to deal with Cox. Everything's fine, and then, boom, he goes back to the staff, and things change. And that leads to the whole situation with, with that. But if you go back, like I said, you've got some calls that make the president look uh, like an innocent man or exculpatory. Well, here's a perfect example of it. Now, Elliot, uh, Archibald Cox is a known Kennedy partisan. He was the Solicitor General under President Kennedy. But what you're getting ready to hear is not a savaging of Mr. Cox by Richard Nixon. It'll surprise you. He doesn't sound like a man worried about this case at all. My God, they better know the stakes are national security and not about a horse. That's right. Picking shovel political dirt, which that's what it is. Really all they have. That's right. And then we want them to know it. And they're going to take a lot of, of, of responsibility in their hands in taking this on. Exactly right. They're going to indict some people. You know that. Oh, yes. That's right. For that time, Drew Richardson will have his prosecutor and all that horse. I see you got a humdinger. What do you got? A fellow named Cox that used to be a solicitor general for Kennedy. But he's very, uh, very uh, well respected. Yes, conscientious. I, I don't think he's too bad. Did he, did he take him? Well, I, they haven't, they haven't endorsed him yet. But he's out, and it'll be hard for them not to. Uh, oh Christ! If he takes, if he, if he asks Cox to do this, they can't turn Cox down. Believe me. No, I don't see how they can. And Cox is not a mean man. He's a partisan, but not, not that mean. That's right. That's the way the description I got. He's not a, yeah. a zealot. Believe me, if he get Cox, that'd be great. Fine, fine. As you can see, President Nixon's not at all terrified about Archibald Cox. He thinks it's a good thing because he thinks Archibald Cox is going to be fair. And I would say that uh, a lot of what you're going to hear from staffers that work for him is that he was a fair-minded man. Archie was amazing. Um, he is one of the most um, kind people. He cares about human qualities, um, and he cares about the law and justice. And he judges people if they act in a moral fashion. He's very committed to moral policies, and he lives lived those those beliefs. Um, he was really someone who was inspiring during the event, um, and as we watched, as I said, we had the 35th reunion uh, of the prosecution team, and we listened to the press conference on the day that became the Saturday Night Massacre, and if you listen to that, you know what kind of man he was and what he cared about, and he always talked about people's character. Uh, that was very important to him. And 
it gave me sort of a set of values that I think I carry with me to this day in terms of how I evaluate people and how I only want to work for people I really respect and admire uh, because that was a pretty great experience to work in that group. An extraordinary person to work for. Archie didn't have any particular experience in criminal law before he was appointed, and so he would question everything, uh, sort of uh, in the Socratic method employed by law professors. And uh, we would explain things to him, and he would say, well, Richard, I understand what you're saying, but is that really fair? And I would say, well, but Archie, this is what prosecutors do. This is prosecutorial tradecraft. And Archie would say, yes, but is it fair? And so we would rethink and uh, to some extent reinvent the wheel. But uh, it was quite an interesting procedure. It's an interesting thing to listen to them talk about what a fair man Archibald Cox was. He put this staff together. The staff was full of partisans, former Kennedy-Johnson people, uh, but that he was demanding some fairness. And he knew and thought of the central guilt of John Dean, and he stuck to that. It's interesting, though, to be a fair and good guy. Obviously, maybe they didn't like that about Archibald Cox. And the Saturday Night Massacre happens, and boom, he's gone. And a new sheriff comes to town, and that's Leon Jaworski. And it was interesting to hear Ben Venisti call it prosecutorial uh, stagecraft. <laughs> we might call that something else. But let's see what happens next. Saturday Night Massacre occurs. Uh, you have a new boss. Tell us about uh, the initial meeting with uh, Leon Jaworski. Well, let me tell you by in retrospect that it actually wasn't a bad shift because you went from a philosophical professor who did a great job in setting up the office and in establishing the legal precedents that ended up guiding us. But in terms of trial, I mean, Leon was a trial lawyer, uh, and so it wasn't so terrible. But he came to us where we all thought he was not to be trusted. That would be putting it mildly. We thought he for sure was, you know, in the pocket of Richard Nixon and that he was going to get in our way. And what will happen next is what leads to all the maneuvering uh, with the staff and the new prosecutor and, uh, as I call it, the sinister force of Watergate, Archibald Cox out of the picture, then all this staff has to do is roll Leon Jaworski, who is, uh, you know, he comes to town with no staff and no anything. And we're going to cover the problems between that staff and Leon Jaworski in our next episode. But in the meantime, uh, you'll have a phone call here where you can see where President Nixon has had enough of dealing with this office. And it's very clear to him that they're out to get him. And I think he tended to blame Archibald Cox for that. And with good reason, he's the boss. But I think as time has come, has, has shown, it may be a lot of manipulation uh, underneath Cox that led to uh, Nixon's rightful feeling that these folks had done, just as Robert Kennedy, because a lot of these were Robert Kennedy people, 
had set up in the Justice Department for a, a Hoffa, the Get Hoffa Squad, what had actually been set up here was the Get Nixon Squad. And we'll be talking about that later, but what Robert Kennedy set up was a system of, here's our target, let's go find the crime. I want you to say, quite candidly, I said, Mr. Cox, all over town, it's been written and said that you're out to get the president. Now, if that is the case, we want you to know we're ready for the fight. I think you should say that to him. Quite clear. I'll put it in just those terms. Yeah. You're out to get the president. He says that that's that several columns have written this and so forth. That you and your staff are out to get the president. He says, see, your record and so forth. We can't believe that, but we... We want you to know that if some of the junior members of your staff say that they have been saying that, put it on them, have been saying this, that if that's it, uh, we're ready for the fight. Now we're going to fast forward up to uh, the pardon, which is later in our story, uh, that Gerald Ford gave President Nixon, which was for any crimes he committed or may have committed after he left office. And there's some things that if you're not aware of, you need to be aware of. One of them is that the income tax charge where he had donated his vice presidential papers, he had had to repay about $300,000 in taxes uh, when that was going on. I think it was a terribly unfair thing because this law only applied to two or three people. Uh, and the, Lyndon Johnson had taken the same deduction for the same thing, a donation of his vice presidential papers. Uh, Nixon does it uh, it's about the timeline. There's a little bit about whether he was late with the donation, but uh, that left him broke. So by the time President Nixon ends up in California after the resignation, uh, he is broke. He is unable to defend himself. They've seized all the papers and records of his presidency, and, and so for him to mount any kind of defense would have been uh, nearly impossible. And you should hear the stories about John Ehrlichman or Bob Halderman or uh, the other defendants in this case having to go into a room. They weren't allowed to take papers out. They weren't allowed to make copies of anything. They couldn't take anything to write notes about, so they had to take from memory and go outside. I mean, they. I, if you want to know why Republicans are defensive to this day, uh, it is because the deck could not have been more stacked against these defendants than what happened during Watergate. And you hear Mr. Uh, Venvenisti... Uh, pointing out that, uh, that the pardon should never have happened so that we could go ahead and run the railroad train over top of President Nixon because he couldn't defend himself. He's broke. He's sick by the time he gets to California. And the whole thing is, is sickening. I assumed that we would have the time uh, to then formulate a charge, uh, bring a charge of now ex-President Nixon, and then the president could decide whether he wanted to pardon Richard Nixon, and Richard Nixon could decide whether he would accept the pardon. But the charges would be spelled out. Instead, uh, President Ford reversed course and issued a pardon. Now, I have no problem with the fact that uh, Ford was within his constitutional power and authority to issue a pardon. I thought the timing was somewhat unfortunate because it left open the question uh, of whether Richard Nixon accepted responsibility uh, for his criminal activity. And that was not to be done except in a most half-hearted and still uh, incomplete way until years later during the David Frost interview of Richard Nixon where he sort of acknowledged that, yes, uh, 
he had been involved in, improperly uh, in connection with the post-break-in activities. But had the matter been framed in all of these revisionist books uh, and statements that uh, were published in the immediate aftermath of Watergate, and I must say continue and persist until this day, um, there would have been a greater clarity uh, brought to bear on exactly uh, what the various positions were, what the proof was against uh, Nixon, and <clears throat> a willingness to accept or not, by going to trial, a responsibility for a criminal activity. Gotta give it old Richard Ben Venisti. He, uh, it seems like he must have had a crystal ball to know that all of this misconduct, alleged misconduct material would one day surface. So you hear him in this interview making sure he's got a defense there. Oh, that the pardon when we had Nixon sick, broke, unable to defend himself. Uh, we could run the train on him. We should have had that opportunity, but President Ford gave him a pardon for any crimes he might have committed, and that's allowed people like, well, Randall Wallace and uh, Nixon and Watergate, our podcast, uh, to make up all this stuff. And you can't believe any of it because it's just a big conspiracy theory. I give it to him. That's a brilliant defense. It gets him ahead of the game. But you know what? As we say in the South, that dog just don't hunt. That brings us to our third undeniable truth. President Nixon really did resign. Haunted by his Oval Office tapes, hounded by the special prosecutors, he announced his resignation in an address to the nation on August 8th. 1974. He was then pardoned by President Ford, but two dozen members of his administration were convicted and sent to prison in the break-in, the cover-up, and the plumber's trials. Now, this is interesting. President Nixon was never brought in before an actual trial. He wasn't tried in court, and there was no actual Senate trial. In either of those two instances, his guilt had to, would have had to have been proven under the rules of evidence by witnesses under oath subject to cross-examination. But that was skipped. So the formal presentation of what Nixon was accused of having done never got into court, never got before the Senate. Now, he was convicted, all right, by the media, uh, he was convicted by the Senate Irvin hearings, and he was convicted in the court of public opinion, but nothing formal. And that gap leaves plenty of room for doubt and for discussion. In between the break-in arrests and President Nixon's resignation and then the conviction of his senior aides were two and a half years of Watergate stories as the scandal unfolded. And all America was mesmerized by the Senate hearings, by the prosecutions, and by the impeachment inquiry in the House. We're now in the midst of the 50th anniversary of that period. This past Labor Day marked the 50th year from the fielding break-in. That was the break-in into the Beverly Hills offices of Daniel Ellsberg's shrink looking to see what his plans might be for further leaks like the Pentagon Papers. It's not really connected to Watergate, 
but the break-in was planned and executed by Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt, who were connected. So it planted the seeds that blossomed into the Watergate scandal. Now, right about this time, right about Thanksgiving 50 years ago, John Dean was recruiting Gordon Liddy to design a campaign intelligence plan. Uh, it's unfortunate that he picked Gordon. It's unfortunate that Gordon got a little carried away with his plan. It involved proposals for mugging, bugging, kidnapping, and prostitution. So one of the fair things to say is that some of Nixon's people were hardly blameless in all this. The question was how high up the rot went. And that's where all the arguments exist even to today. And we're going to show you where some of these tapes are actually exculpatory when you listen to all of them and not just the snippets. But John W. Dean had a problem, and that was he wasn't very credible. There was a trial that was held in New York, one of the only ones that was not in Judge Sirica's courtroom, in which the jury found everybody innocent, uh, Maurice Stans and John Mitchell. And so they decided that the best thing to do was throw the book at John Dean. Now, then they, they, then they put him up in a, in a military holding facility that, where, they, where they would uh, put uh, mafia people in the witness protection program. Uh, while it's a confinement, he's on a military base with all the ease and comforts. And he would go work in the office. And then after the trials were over, he was uh, time served and let go. So uh, they did that to enhance his credibility. And then they wrote about it in the book Stonewall. Moral balancing aside, the real politic of the situation was that Dean would not be an effective witness at trial if he got a free ride. His credibility would be substantially diminished by his making a deal with the prosecutors to implicate others only if the prosecutors completely forgave his own deep involvement. The evident effect of Dean's prison sentence later on the jurors at the Watergate cover-up trial confirmed our tactical judgment. As a man who was already serving a long jail term for doing what he testified he had been instructed to do by Haldeman and Erdogan, Dean made a measurably greater impression than if he had never been charged or punished for his acts. Again, Stonewall, chapter on John W. Dean III, page 107. So with that, I thought we would leave tonight uh, doing the same thing we had done if you tuned into our podcast early on we started the Vietnam uh, shows that covered the Lyndon Johnson presidency and President Nixon's time dealing with Vietnam uh, you know a lot of the early parts of the war are, are situations that were we were led into because of Robert McNamara the Secretary of Defense and because our podcast did center on Mr. McNamara and some of the advice he gave, especially around the Gulf of Tonkin, I found an interview that he gave in 1994, uh, and it was done by Ted Koppel. And uh, it was a chance for at least Mr. McNamara's side of the story to be told uh, in our narrative. And I only think it fair to do the same for John Dean. And he did an appearance on Nightline uh, with Ted Koppel, so the same same program, um, right uh, after the uh, first set of these tapes were uh, open to the public. And so with that, I thought we would close this show with the Dean defense. Here's John Dean on Nightline uh, giving his side of the story. This is a Nightline Friday night special. It was a stunning revelation. 
Are you aware of the installation of any listening devices in the Oval Office of the President? I was aware of listening devices. Yes, sir. The best is au revoir. More than a quarter century later, the tapes that helped bring down a president can be broadcast for the first time. There's revenge. And a warning to the president. We have a cancer within the Tonight, the Nixon tapes, listening in on the White House cover. From ABC News, this is Nightline. Reporting from Washington, Ted Koppel. Most of us who lived through the final days of the Nixon presidency will never forget how it all began. But probably more than half the people alive in America today either weren't born yet or were just too young to have any awareness of what was going on. So let's begin tonight with a thumbnail refresher course. June 1972. The Watergate building here in Washington. Hotel, apartments, and some offices. Among those, the offices of the Democratic National Committee. Several men are arrested after breaking into that office, and they turn out to have ties to both the CIA and the committee to re-elect the president, Richard Nixon. The White House press secretary dismisses the whole affair as a third-rate burglary. It is the beginning of the cover-up. Enough damaging material emerges over the next several months that the U.S. Senate convenes what came to be known as the Watergate hearings. It is at one of those hearings that minority counsel Fred Thompson who would later be elected to the Senate himself, Thompson asks an obscure deputy assistant to the president about a recording system in the White House. Mr. Butterfield, as far as you know, from your own personal knowledge, uh, from 1970 then until the present time, all of the president's conversations and the offices mentioned and on the telephones mentioned were recorded. As far as you know. That's correct until until I left. It was a breathtaking revelation. Back in February of 1971, it turned out, President Nixon had ordered his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, to install a voice-activated recording system in his various offices. Haldeman was also instructed to have the phones tapped. And while the quality, as you'll hear shortly, was sometimes terrible, those 3,700 hours of tape conversations shattered the cover-up led to the conviction of several of the president's closest aides and ultimately convinced Richard Nixon himself that he had to resign. Among the most damaging tapes were some of those released today. The transcripts have been out before, but unless you went to the National Archives, you will not have heard them before today. This first excerpt in which the president and his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, discuss using the CIA to shut down an FBI investigation of the break-in this tape convinced many Republicans to abandon Nixon. And five days later, in fact, Mr. Nixon did resign. When Haldeman refers to Walters, incidentally, he's talking about Deputy CIA Director Vernon Walters. Pat Gray was then the acting director of the FBI. The way to handle this now is to 
stay stay the hell out of this. This is a business here. We don't want you going any further. That's not an unusual development. And uh, that would take care of everything, right? Pat doesn't, doesn't want to. He doesn't know how to, and he doesn't have. He doesn't have any basis for doing. Given this, he will then have the basis. He'll call Mark Bell and and the two of them. And Mark Bell wants to cooperate because he's ambitious. You know. uh, they'll call him in and say we we've got the signal across the river to, to put the hold on this, and that'll fit rather well because the FBI agents who are working the case at this point feel that's what it is. Is a CIA. Got good deal. Play the That's the way they play it. That's where we're going to play it. Okay. And joining me now, the former White House counsel to President Nixon, John Dean, now an investment banker in California. How did um, how did they know to ask about the taping system? Well, they knew because they were actually following up on my testimony before the Senate when I testified that I believed that Richard Nixon had recorded me. And why did you believe that? I believed it because of Nixon's uh, conduct during very late in our dealings. In one of the conversations, a uh, very sensitive conversation, he asked me leading question after leading question. Then at one point he gets up and he goes over to the corner of his office and in a stage whisper he says something to me. And at that point I said, John, this man is recording you. And so I, rather than... You know, I, I wanted to make the clear to the Senate, I believed there was a record of these. That's why they could test that and test the truth of what I was saying. And I put it in, and they kept trying to discredit people, or me. And they finally asked Butterfield, and he said, yes, I think Dean was recorded. Now, that piece of tape that we just heard has come to be known as the smoking gun tape. Uh, I need to remind our, our viewers the tape was actually made five or six days after the break-in, wasn't revealed until five days before Mr. Nixon resigned. So there was a two-year gap there. Right. Uh, why do you take issue with that? Why do you think it was not that damning a piece of tape? Well, when you hear the whole conversation, he is actually following my advice. I had been, I was passing on what John Mitchell, the former attorney general, thought he should do. And in doing so, I was doing it based on my belief that the reason we were concerned at the White House was because of camp potential Campaign Act violations. Contributors were going to be uncovered as a result of the FBI investigation that we were particularly concerned about. This was something that I had an agreement with the Department of Justice several days earlier they would not investigate. But in suggesting that the, the Deputy Director of the CIA call up the Acting Director of the FBI, that's clearly using a, one government agency to block the investigation of another. A week later, it would have been a misuse of an agency. At that time, we were very confused as to what the CIA did know, didn't know, how involved or not involved. We didn't have the answers. And in fact, there is documentary evidence where, uh, uh, that says that they're not even sure at some early stage like that. So I don't think it was an obstruction. It was defensible by Nixon at that well, point. Clearly, there would come a time, as you lawyers like to say, uh, when indeed you no longer felt that things were so innocent. And you made That's a true. warning uh, uh, that contained a, a quote that uh, may be the most famous quote of that time, in which you spoke to the president uh, and said, uh, Mr. President, I think there may be a cancer growing on the presidency. Let's listen to that part. You don't know everything I know, 
very difficult for you to make judgments that, uh, that only you can make right. on some of these things. And I thought that you guys, I don't know why you do you. Well, let me, uh, let, me let me give you my overall first. Uh, your your I think I think that uh, there's no doubt about the seriousness of the problem we've got. We have a cancer within close to the presidency that's growing. It's growing daily. It's compounding. It grows geometrically now because it compounds itself. Uh, That'll be clear as I explain, you know, some of the details uh, of why it is. And basically, it's because one, we're being blackmailed. Two, uh, people are going to start perjuring themselves very quickly that have not had to perjure themselves to protect other people in life. And that is just, and there's no assurance that that won't bust. Now, it sounds, John, as, as I hear the president, as though he is really eager to hear. Uh, I mean, almost pathetically eager to hear what these terrible things are that are going on. But you then proceeded to tell him what was his reaction as you told him. Yeah, this is a very lengthy conversation. It runs an, over an hour, and I raise one horrible after another. Uh, I'm trying to really reach in and tell him the criminality that I think that he has to deal with at the White House. And every time I'd throw one up, uh, he would bat it away. Uh, it was, if you go on and hear this conversation, you'll hear pauses at time where I'm trying to, I'm really somewhat surprised at the president's reaction. And I'm not quite sure how to deal with it next. So I just keep throwing one after another after another. The first time I'd ever gathered all this information in my mind and, and, and tried to tell it to somebody in summary form, thinking it was pretty devastating. And I had hoped the president would, you know, put his hand down on the desk and say, this has got to end. Did you really believe when you went in, when you sort of prepared yourself for this conversation, that you were informing a man who knew nothing about it? And, and uh, what do you think now? Well, I was prepared to give him the benefit of the doubt. That's the way I set up the conversation with him. I now know, uh, having read other transcripts of conversations, that he knew a lot more than I thought. However, I must say, I don't think he knew everything. And he has written himself that I'm the only one who tried to warn him. And as a, as a consequence of those warnings, did he give you any indication that he was going to do anything? Or was it just batting him all aside? It was batting him aside. And as we know from later tapes, he actually went to visit Rosemary Woods when he left me to see if she had some money. Because that's one of the problems that I was raising. That, there, that hush money would be required. That's right. And that, in fact, is going to be one of the things we talk about when we come back. Wiretapping the Democrats and hush money. This is ABC News Nightline. Between January and April 1973, Richard Nixon's popularity drops 14 points. He's a president under siege. Front page stories, especially in the Washington Post, chronicle the allegations against administration officials. On April 12, 1973, the Post reports that former Attorney General John Mitchell, who ran the president's re-election campaign, had allegedly ordered wiretaps against the Democrats, and transcripts of those conversations had been delivered to Mitchell. Two days later, the president discusses the matter with his two top aides, Bob Haldeman and John Ehrlichman. The bugs were to have been placed in three locations. And three places. And Bob, I mean, three places. Watergate, 
headquarters in the farm. In the conversation that took orally approval. Now, it involved other things besides tax, and uh, he was not specific. He said, in all, in all honesty, this was a kind of non-decision. No, we were comfortable with this thing. But we were sort of bulldozed into it. Let me tell you, John, the thing about all of this that is concerning me is the dragging the goddamn out of thing out of them. Dragging it out and being and having the only issue in town. Not the thing to do now have a son of a bitch done. Indict Mitchell and all the rest. And now we are. Horrible two weeks. This horrible, terrible scandal. Worse than Keith Bogdell and so forth. And it isn't, doesn't have anything to do with Keith Bogdell. It isn't bad as anything. Yeah. I mean, good God, there's no finality involved in the damn thing. No thievery or anything of that sort of thing. Nobody got any favors. Later that night, after attending the White House Correspondents' Dinner, the President calls Chief of Staff Haldeman concerned that the White House plan to pay the Watergate burglars hush money is unraveling. I just don't know how it's going to come out, though. That's the whole point. And I, and I just don't know. Is that when I was serious, when I said to John uh, at the end there, I said, God damn it, all these guys that participated in raising the money and so forth have got to stick to the line that they did not raise this money to obstruct justice. Yeah. We shall see. And it's the word of the, of the felons against the word of the men that raise the money. Yeah, that's right. And I'm back once again with John Dean. Um, he sure doesn't sound like an innocent in that in that second conversation. Does no, he? no, he doesn't. Uh, at this point, uh, the cover-up is clearly falling apart. Uh, I have stepped forward. I had told him I was going to go to the prosecutors. I had gone to the prosecutors, and obstruction of justice was quickly becoming the issue. Not we we divided it between pre and post. In other words, pre break-in, post break-in. And the post problems after the break-in were now becoming the serious problem, which had always troubled me the most. What surprised me a little bit is is how quickly he is prepared to discard his old friend, and he really was his old friend, John Mitchell. Uh, I mean, publicly, Nixon always seemed to agonize about these things. Here, privately, seems easy. Well, um, as the later tapes show, uh, I was the next to go and would become en enemy number one. As uh, the prosecutors once said, I went from good John Dean to mean John Dean. On one level, his instincts are right. Uh, I mean, he just wasn't prepared to go far enough. And that is, let's get this thing out. Let's, let's really burst the canker. That being my belief and my advice to him was that not only did I have to resign, Haldeman and Ehrlichman had to resign, everybody had to go, was the only way to give him a chance to get out in front of it, and I think if he'd done that, he might have survived. I was going to say very quickly, because eventually, all of he, I mean, he dumped every one of you, threw you all overboard. If he'd done it quickly, immediately, would he have saved his presidency? I, I think he could have certainly gone a long way to doing that. Uh, I thought when I started forward, the others would follow me. Uh, I learned just the opposite was the course. Uh, I'd picked a fight now that, rather than find a solution. When we come back, President Nixon summons John Dean and, as John has suggested, asks him to resign. A day after John Dean informs President Nixon that he's cooperating with federal prosecutors and amid eroding support from congressional Republicans and from inside the White House, Nixon calls John Dean to the Oval Office and asks for his resignation. Not to be released, but I should have it in hand. Something or otherwise, I'll say, what the hell do you do? After Mr. Dean told you all this, what do you do? You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Are we talking to Dean? Are we talking to Dean? Are we talking to Dean?
Nixon wants Dean to sign both a letter of resignation and one requesting a leave of absence. Dean refuses and instead drafts an alternative letter asking for a leave of absence. It was a tense 45-minute conversation where Nixon, perhaps mindful that the conversation was being recorded, reminds Dean of the virtues of truth-telling. Back once again with John Dean. Did it ever occur to you, John, to fall on your sword for the president? Well, actually, Ted, when I started this whole plan of trying to force the issues, I really thought he had multiple opportunities to survive. And I thought it seemed that no one was willing to step forward. And my decision to step forward was not to force the president out of office, but rather give him options where he could survive. So I, did, I in a sense, thought I was, in a way, doing that. And had others have followed, I think he might have uh, indeed, as I heard, survived. But getting back to that original point, if you had not mentioned your suspicion that you were being recorded, the tapes never would have emerged or probably would not have emerged. And if you had not cooperated with the federal prosecutors, those two things might have changed the course of history. There is no, there is no question in my mind that there was a point where if I had stayed and played, if you will, as opposed to coming forward and breaking rank, that there's no question Richard Nixon would have survived. Uh, I might not have been indicted even, because all there was was hearsay at that point as to above the men who'd been arrested at the, at the Watergate. So who knows what would have happened, but I just wasn't prepared to live my life that way. You, you really became famous for having a steel trap memory. I mean, it turns out that the tapes, in fact, confirmed almost verbatim sometimes what had been said in those conversations. Um, when the president was talking about you got to tell the truth, as he was at the end of that last conversation, what was he about there? Well, was he just being very conscious of the fact that there were microphones all over the place? I think so. That the night before is when I had become convinced he was recording me on the 15th. This was on a Monday morning where he was asking for my resignation, and I thought very much that whole conversation, that again, it was filled with leading questions, was really to make a record. And so there was little question in my mind that that indeed is what he was doing. You were a young man at the time. What gave you the spine to say to the President of the United States, no, I'm not going to resign? Well, because I thought the, the right thing to do was not just for me to resign, but for those from whom I'd taken my instruction, Haldeman and Ehrlichman, to go too, and that would solve his problem. Explain to me, I mean, people have always put it in terms of why didn't he burn the, the tapes. My question is, why did he leave those microphones in place? Why didn't he just tell the Secret Service, tear them all out? Well, he put them back in, actually. Uh, there were there some different ones during Johnson, but he put them back in and turned them on. And I think he wanted a historical record and just never, ever believed that he would have to give it up. But, uh, I mean, even if he'd been able to finish his presidency, can he have really wanted historians, even a hundred years from now, long after his presidency was over, to have listened to those tapes and to have listened to those 
machinations, manipulations, evasions. Why? Uh, I don't think he ever thought that would happen. In other words, he would preserve what he thought was worthy of preservation, the remainder where he is taking cheap shots at people or attacking women, blacks, Jews, what have you, as he was wont to do, uh, would never have surfaced. So, so I think it was controlled. If he'd, if he'd been able to finish his term, he might have spent his retirement going through 3,700 hours and boiling it down to the essential 100. He might have had somebody do it for him. John Dean, thank you. That's our report for tonight. I'm Ted Koppel in Washington. For all of us here at ABC News, good night. This has been a presentation of ABC News. More Americans get their news from ABC News than from any other source. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.